Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And I hope that you've been enjoying all the episodes that we've been putting out. Last month, we had a great month celebrating Pride all month. So if you hadn't had a chance to go back and listen to some of those, in case you may have missed any of those incredible stories being shared from the community, and it has really, really been impactful. I think people have learned a lot that people have come on and shared and just been their true authentic self when they've come on to share, you know, their struggles, their successes, things that they would do different and, and just the communities that they've been able to help. So. If you haven't had a chance, please, please, please go back and listen to our celebration of Pride Month. That was all from the month of June. So with that, today we are going to be joined by my good friend. He's been on the show before. We haven't had him back in a while. It's been a while. Like I was checking. I think it's been a few years since we've had him on. Yeah, it's crazy that it's been a few years since you've been on and crazy that the podcast has been going for a few years. I didn't realize <laughs> yeah. that. Like, yeah. You look up and there's like a hundred and I think that we've recorded like 150 some odd episodes, 155 or something like that. So you're overdue. I should have reached out sooner, but we're yeah. here now. And today we are joined by the one and only Carl Richards. Emlyn, cheers, my friend. So good to chat with you again. Yeah, absolutely. I've been watching what you're doing always. I'm a huge fan. We were just talking about the behavior gap and you said this is the 10 year anniversary this year. Absolutely love that book. It changed my life. It changed the way I looked at planning. Mm. It really got me into the behavioral finance bug. I just finished a beta group with Ryan Portnoy and the behavioral mm. financial advisor. This is how deep it's gotten into me now because of that book that I was able to read. So thank you for that. Just wanted to thank you for that, actually. Yeah. I mean, I that makes me so happy. If I can think of myself as a gateway drug to Portnoy's work, <laughs> that's thrilling, right? So Ooh. super good. It's been good. But what's been going on with you? So I talked to us. To, I mean, uh, it's been a while. For those that don't know you, please, please give a little bit about who you are, Carl. Yeah. So I am um, just a kid from the hills in Utah. And I went to apply at one point. The short version of the story is I went to apply at one point for what I thought was a security guard job because I had no background with money and investments and finance. I had no clue. I wasn't raised around it. I didn't know what it was. So I was in college looking for a job that I could work at night so I could go to school full-time still. And I applied for what I thought was a security guard job. It turns out the ad said securities, not security. And I didn't really know the difference. And once I kind of woke up from that weird dream of, whoa, what's going on here? And realized I quickly was like trying to get my bearings in this new job thinking it must be about math because that's what they gave us a calculator, I think, or something, right? And then I quickly realized as soon as I started having conversations with customers at the time, that this job that we think is about math is really not, it's about emotions. And so I got into this industry, kind of speaking broadly, the financial advice industry by accident, but I've stayed because it's just endlessly fascinating. People, us humans, and definitely myself included, we are endlessly fascinating in our relationship with money. And I think we've got a lot still, I've got an endless amount to learn. So that job led to, you know, one thing led to another. I started learning in public, you know, I was just like, oh, I'd learn something, I would share it in public. That led to 
writing for some public newspapers and then a book and then a second book. So that's really the short version of it. Yeah. So if you are listening and it's the first time you heard Carl, the first book was The Behavior Gap is the second book that you wrote. Was it Index Card? No. So it came out the same time as Index Card, which makes me happy that it would be like literally almost the same month. It's called The One Page Financial Plan. How did I forget that? Yeah, no, I will. They're they're both like, we actually wondered (laughs) if we were saying the same thing. And I always saw them as very complimentary to each other. But yeah, how simple can you make this, right? Was the kind of theme of both of those books. So The One Page Financial Plan was the second book. And I use the one page financial plan. I've been using the one page financial plan since I read that book because it comes in like a package. Like I got the behavior gap, one page financial plan and index card. All three of those books were kind of perfect. Sold together. perfect. Yeah. Because um, you talked about it with the one page financial plan. And I think about my clients and I, well, I think about what I used to give them, <laughs> you know, right. what I would give them. And, you know, we're going through this plan for two hours to figure out everything that, you know, because I have a lot to say. So we have two hour meeting to deliver this. 200 page plan. Isn't it great when like one of our fundamental promises is here, let me simplify your life. And the first deliverable is a 200 page plan and a 20 page monthly statement from your brokerage account. Like here, how is that for simple? I remember I had a client who said that. I remember who it was. It was just call him Dr. Terry. He loved a mountain bike. He just wanted everything as simple as possible. He came in after the first meeting because I'd mailed him the plan. And he also got his statement at the same time. He came in with both those. He printed them out. And was just like dropped him on my desk and was like, is this what you call simplifying my life? Mm-hmm. Is that what you call this? Like, oh man, we got to figure something else out. Yeah. yeah. It was just, I mean, it's excruciating, but it's a painful process when you're going through, because it's just a lot of stuff to go over and who remembers anything from that plan? And how do you have actual items from a 200 page document that you can actually follow? So I like to keep it simple. And that book really resonated with me about keeping it simple. One of the things you talk about a lot is real financial planning. And I think about that. We did a financial planning series on the pod, like where we went through each step, each of the seven steps of financial planning. So we had one episode on that, an episode on each step. So all seven. And I was thinking about that. And I always think about what you say when you talk about real financial planning, but please, please share with the audience what real financial planning is. Yeah. So it's a little bit, initially it was a little bit tongue in cheek. Because when I first said those words, it was probably 15, yeah, I could look in the calendar, but it's probably 15 years ago at an FPA retreat. I was on a panel. It was Michael Kitsis, Tim Maurer, and I all 15 years ago. And I remember this frustration I had that, you know, what you read about in the news about our industry, financial planners, financial advisors, stockbrokers, like whatever you want to call them, the, the public and those people listening to this it's really hard to tell the difference between what's going on. It's my banker. What's the difference between that and my life insurance agent? And I remember being really frustrated with the idea that there was so much complaining, like the stories you would read about our industry didn't match the experience I was having. And even more so the experience I was watching close friends who were financial planners have, like these people were saving people's lives, right? This was like, A, they were super good, like technically, like really good professionals, And B, they were deeply empathetic. So there was this ability to listen. And so I remember saying at that panel discussion, I remember saying, it's like there's a secret society of real financial planners. Mm -hmm. And at this conference, there was always a couple of blocks of the agenda were set aside for self-generated topics. So you'd go write your topic on a board and you would say, I'm going to meet at table two and I'm going to talk about this. Somebody wrote down real financial planning and Mm -hmm. it was at this big table outside. I went outside. 
And there was, you know, like the president of the FPA, the Financial Planning Association. These were like luminaries around this table. And everybody was sort of saying like, what does real financial planning mean? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, man, if we don't understand it, you know, so that was 15 years ago. And so for me, what it really means is it's kind of simplest form is almost everything you see about financial advice or personal finance, almost everything, everything in the bookstore, everything on the financial pornography network, CNBC, everything that all the financial bloggers, almost all of us, even including financial planners, almost everything you see is hacking at the branches, right? It's like, which software should I use for budgeting? Which product should I use for insurance? What investment would be the best? It's all up in the branches. Those are incredibly important decisions. Don't get me wrong. Like they're really, really important, but they don't matter at all if we don't get clear about why we're doing it in the first place. And no one's talking about that. And by no one, I there's an asterisk there, right? No one but real financial planners are talking about that. It's like we've decided to endlessly debate whether you should take a plane, a train, or an automobile on a trip. Let's debate that endlessly before we've even decided where we're going, right? So real financial planning is deciding or at least talking about and working through, and it's an endless process. So it's not like you get to decide where you're going because it actually changes. And it's getting clear about where you want to go or where at least you think you want to go. And I I often refer to it as guessing, like guessing where you want to go and then going out and finding the appropriate vehicles to get there. And one last way I would think about it is real financial planning is aligning your use of capital and capital has an asterisk by it. And it says time, money, energy, and attention. So aligning your use of capital with what is actually important to you. That's the process to me of real financial planning. And that is to take nothing away from how important it is to know which products to use Mm -hmm. and which app to use and to know how to use a calculator and a spreadsheet. Like real financial planners know how to do that. But that stuff doesn't even actually matter. Sorry, Emily, one last thing. The Stephen Covey quote's perfect for this. The last thing you want to do is spend your whole life climbing a ladder only to figure out it's leaning against the wrong wall. So real financial planning is like, let's get clear about the wall, the destination, and align our use of capital with what we say is important to us. It's so interesting as you say that, like I'm thinking about conversations I have with clients and just about real financial planning and real financial planning is tapping in to understand, you know, aligning their goals and their values. And a lot of people, like when you're talking to them, they're so conditioned to talk to us about nest products, talk about where they think they should be, what they should have done. Like every time I talk to someone, it's just, you know, all the mistakes they've made, everything they've done wrong, not necessarily on any time spending on how do you want your life to look? What is important to you? What do you want to accomplish? Not necessarily in terms of like, let's just take out all the, you know, all the financial stuff. Like, what do you want to do? What brings you true sense of joy? What brings you fulfillment? What do you value? And when we have those questions in our meetings with clients, it's like, they're so prepared to answer all the money questions and not anything about themselves that they don't understand that you're more important than the money. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I don't know if it's because we've been conditioned that way. I don't know if it's because, you know, I think it's a large part of the conditioning. Almost the advertising that we see is like, if you have this much money, then we can help you do this. If you have this, then you can do that. And it's always about what we can do, not about what we actually want. Yeah, totally. It turns out that it's actually really hard to get clear about what's important to you. And it's just, A, I think you're right, like conditioned. We haven't 
ever had those conversations. If we've had any conversation around money ever, like in school or with our parents, we were almost always taught that it was a question of math, right? It was a spreadsheet. It was a calculator. And so what happens, I think, to people is you go to talk about it with, let's say, a spouse or a partner or a business partner or a friend or a family member. And this weird thing happens. It's almost like you touched an electric fence that you didn't know was electric. I mean, you expected it to be math. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're like, whoa, why are we arguing? Mm -hmm. Why am I suddenly remembering remembering a conversation I just had recently with somebody? Sorry, I don't mean to get it. But remembering a conversation where somebody said, why am I remembering my dad yelling at me to not be so spoiled? All we were talking about was the Amex bill. You know, you're like, oh, wait, wait, turns out that this stuff is not about math. It's about, unfortunately, I believe, unfortunately, the organizing force in the world is money. And that's a bummer. It should be love, right? We all know that, but it's money. And so your goals, your dreams, your fears about whether I was just having another conversation with a friend who was telling me about how painful it was when he saw his son get into an ambulance because he knew, I mean, his, his overwhelming concern was his son, but in the back of his mind, he was like, I don't have the $10,000 that that's going to cost. What am I going to do? So you've got that, like that's at the center of all this. And then I think you add onto it, the idea that we're just as humans, we're not very good at knowing what's important to us. We're not very good at knowing what our goals are. We're really good at mimicking everybody else. And Rene Girard's work on mimetic desire is sort of made this clear and Instagram has not helped. So it's very rare that somebody comes in and you have a real financial planning discussion with them that it feels comfortable. It's rare because these are not questions people are used to asking. Which is why they're unhappy with their money is because we keep hacking at the branches, hacking at the branches, hacking at the branches. And, oh, those 10 mutual funds didn't work. I'll buy 10 other ones like that app. You know, it's this continual hamster wheel because we're not solving the problem at the root. Right. As you've pointed out, because Mm -hmm. nobody's talking about it. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff I've been using, we had uh, George Kinder on the pod a couple Mm. weeks back. And we're talking to him about questions and, you know, the Kinder questions people talk about And those questions are so powerful when you sit down and just ask questions and not say anything. That's the most important part, right? After you ask these powerful questions, we want to fill this silence with noise from ourselves. And we don't need to do that. After you ask the question, who did you not be able to become? What didn't you get to do? What regrets do you have? You have to be quiet after you ask a deep, impactful question like that. And I think we are so conditioned, we've talked about this before, about wanting to tell clients how much we know that we don't spend the time listening about what's important to them so that we can in turn do the real financial planning. And I think this is something that I've still tried to implement into my life. And this is coming really about being empathetic with people as they're going through this. And shout out to Brian Portnoy, Joy and Neil over at BTA. Because we went over this section and talking about empathy and it was really impactful in my ability to shut up (laughs) when I ask questions, like like just ask a question and then shut up and then let them talk. It's really interesting. And this is one of my favorite subjects. It's always really ironic because it's, you know, in podcast form, it's like kind of what you do is talk. But I think that that's 
incredibly important. And it's important. I used to write and I still sometimes do before a meeting in Sharpie on my arm where I can see it, but it's not where somebody else can see it easily. I used to write two versions of it. The cleaner version is, is I used to write, wait, why am I talking? Wait. And the other version was the STFU <laughs> version. Like, why the are you, you know, shut the up, right? So I think those reminders are important. And it's also important to remember that if you're either the client of a real financial planner or you are the real financial planner, that you should expect that process to be pleasantly uncomfortable, right? By definition, if you ask a really good question, people aren't going to know the answer readily because they've never been asked. And that process of not knowing the answer is going to be a little uncomfortable. And you have to leave room for that to breathe a little bit. But I am super curious, Emlyn, like, are there any differences? Have you noticed differences based on race, gender? Have you noticed any differences in the desire to enter into that space? No, I haven't noticed any differences. Let me just make sure I'm getting the question right. Enter into like that emotional space and they're into that what? Having conversations about what's real, right? Like, hey, what is this really for? Have you noticed any differences in different communities that you hang out in? No, actually. Fascinating. When we get there and we really start to let them unpack what's going on at the core root of it, everyone gets, it's also, it's across gender. You know, I've had men be very emotional in the meetings, you know, to the point of shedding a few tears. Once you allow people to get there, it is even more important to wait. And we're using your acronym there. Wonder why you're talking like you don't need to interrupt this person's time right here. This is their moment. And I think I've seen that across gender. I've seen it across race. The emotions that are tied to money are real. And if you don't allow people to get those out, you are doing them a disservice and you're doing yourself a disservice because you can't service them the way that they need to be if you haven't understood their true needs and emotions around their relationship with money. Yeah, no, that's been my experience too. And what I'm curious about is, so like, let's be stereotypical for a minute, you know, like a stereotypical engineer. Maybe this is even a better example. I remember a client, his name was Jerry. And Jerry was from this generation that I guess you'd call Tom Brokaw, called it the greatest generation, Tom Brokaw's greatest generation. (laughs) And it was duty, responsibility, and community. And as deep as he got, Jerry was not going to cry in my office. Mm -hmm. Wasn't going to happen. And he didn't need to. Like as deep as he got was, I never want to be a burden to the kids. Now, I promise you, he had never said that to anyone else. So like that's deep enough. Jerry's why was I never want to be a burden to the kids. That's different. And I could just put Jerry maybe like I was wondering generationally, occupation. And I know culturally, like for instance, in the UK, it's even a little more challenging to talk about money traditionally in the UK than it is here. Because it's just, there was this, you know, the royal class and sort of this whole thing. We don't talk about that a little more proper, a little more, you know, like a little less open. It's just like you wouldn't talk about money, politics, sex, or religion, you know, it's like a little more proper. And then I would say like, okay, forget geographic differences or age differences. You could go like stereotypical engineer. And this is obviously huge stereotypes. Tom Brokaw's greatest generation. Obviously there are people that would cry in your office, right? In the UK, obviously, I had tons of comfort. I actually didn't even buy that story that it was harder there. And then engineers, of course, we have engineers that have feelings. But stereotypically, 
So have you noticed any of those types of stereotypes from different cultural backgrounds? And let me just mention gender real quickly. The only thing I noticed about gender was that I got called out more often by women clients who would have this innate BS meter and essentially say like, really, (laughs) you think you know what the next 20 years of my life are going to look like? You know, when I was early on, when I was really selling certainty in the form of a 30 year line on a piece of paper, (laughs) you know, a projection. And it only happened like two or three times, but it was always women who were like, I didn't know exactly what I was going to be doing a year ago. And you think your little line is going to, so I agree. I don't think there's some, anything stereotypically about gender. Have you noticed any of those things culturally or with any other sort of groups of people? Honestly, the thing that I've noticed is it depends on how good I am at asking the question. Well, that's so good. That's <laughs> because, true. Because if I ask shitty questions, which I've done for a long time, then it's hard to get people to the place where uh. they feel comfortable with you. And the funny thing about this is with questions, right? I think about some of my clients and some of my friendships. The friendships yeah. and the clients that I have that like me the most are the ones that I talk the least to. And let me explain that. When we're in conversations, it's typically the people that I'm asking more questions to opposed to giving advice. Cause you know, we all have a whole bunch of advice to give to everyone. But when I find myself having the best conversations, it's usually when I'm not talking. But to get to that place, you have to be able to ask really good questions that will carry the conversation or allow the person to feel more comfortable to share. Those are the clients that call me and are like, you know, tell me everything that's going on in their life. And said, man, I love talking to you. And I didn't really say anything. They're the ones that reach across the table and grab your arm and go, thanks, you solved everything. And you're mm-hmm. like, I didn't say a word. Didn't say a word. Just I like call that a ninja trick. I think that's like a ninja trick. And I love it when I can get myself. My wife sometimes tells me, hey, tonight would be a good night for you to practice that ninja trick that you think you are good at. <laughs> you know, like, what if you just ask the kids questions tonight? Mm-hmm. So good. How did you find... Well, first of all, that's an amazing answer because it shifts all the burden of providing value to you. It's not like, oh, that stereotypical person, he's an engineer, they're not very good. It's like, no, actually, that's just a function of my skill. Mm-hmm. I got to get better. So that's really cool. How have you found your questions? Well, actually, let me just mention one thing for your listeners. Yeah. If you're working with or looking to find a financial planner, it's really hard. I've tried. I tried the column in the New York Times. I wrote that every week for 10 years. And every year or so, we would try to come up with a checklist of how to hire a financial planner. And every time we'd come up with a checklist, somebody would meet every single checklist and then not be a real financial planner. Like we all know those stories. One of the things I might want to just point people to is in your engagement with this person that you're trying to decide if they're a real financial planner, one of the signs will be they ask really good questions and that they listen really well, and that you'll leave feeling thoroughly diagnosed long before there's a prescription, right? If you have any doubt about that, you're going to go home and get second opinions and you're going to Google the medicine, right? But if you feel thoroughly diagnosed, you just fill the prescription. And so that's one way to think about if you have a planner like that, awesome. If you don't try to fix that relationship or find a new one, right? That's the way I think about how you hire a real financial planner. So my question to you, first of all, any comments on that? But second, how have you found the questions that you really love? Great question. And you're spot on with finding someone that asks good questions. Because if they're asking questions about you, they're trying to discover more about you. And if the financial plan is going to be about you, then they probably should know 
some of that information. <laughs> yeah, it might be it's helpful. Kind of crazy. <laughs> So what I've been able to do is I use those kinder questions as a baseline. And then what I'll do is just ask clarifying questions after the fact. Most of the time, we're talking about money scripts, we're talking about emotions, and I'm not really worried to touch on those where some people don't like to touch on that. One of the things that we do with our clients is the first thing we do is we do a values deck. We've been doing this for years and I love to get the values to the clients or let them pick their values because it makes... Mm. The question's even more impactful. If someone's saying that they value family, if someone's saying they value security, if someone's saying they value independence, whatever it is that they value, then when I start asking questions, I have a better idea of what type of questions to ask them because they've told me what's important to them. Now, I'm not trying to be tricky or anything like that. That's just a better way for me to ask questions because now I can stay in the areas that are important to them as we start to develop the plan. So it's a lot of dialogue or question asking and then getting a little deeper if they don't answer the question. And then really what I see a lot of times is people haven't, like one, you said they take a little longer to answer these questions. So you ask a good question, it's going to have a pause. So I still haven't said what questions I ask. I'm just saying I ask the questions according to what they value. After I figure out what they value, then I can kind of tailor the questions that I think are going to lead me down the road of what's important to them. Super smart. When you say values deck, are you talking like a physical deck, almost like a deck of cards with values on written on them? Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And since okay. we do this on, uh, yeah, I know everybody can see this. You can't see it because of the, the oh yeah, the background. Exactly. yeah. But yeah, these think to perform. It's think to perform, and they have values cards. Now that we're doing everything virtually. I just email them the link, and they can pick. So basically, how it starts is there's 50 words, okay. And the first round, you pick 15 of the words. So after you pick the 15, those are the 15 that resonate with you the most. I'm pulling out the decks now. It could be religion, family, ethics, wealth, pleasure, friendship, happiness, diversity, education, loyalty, work, any of those, right? So it's going to be 50 of those things. You get 15 out, right? And now we have 15. Now we have to make some decisions because all 15 aren't making it. So of those 15, what 10 mean the most to you? Then after we get to those 10, then we got to make another cut because only five of them really are what's important to you. And- After we get there, you know, someone comes in and I'm just going to pick out random ones. Let's say health, autonomy, order, decisiveness, and meaningful work. Wow. Uh, yeah. Now we got something to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> right? for sure. We got something to talk about. Let them explain to you what those mean. The cards come with a little thing, a little definition of what they mean, but it's always good to let the client tell you what those mean and why those are important. So good. So good. Yeah. I think what's interesting to me. And again, for the benefit of the listeners, like what's going on and if you're the client, what you're doing, you don't know that you're doing it. And for advisors, planners, this is really helpful information. If I'm the client, what I'm trying to make a decision on, if I'm looking to hire Emlyn as my planner, is I've got to design. Now, again, I never use these words, but this is what's actually going on in our heads. I've got a desired future state. There's a reason I'm there. And the reason might be it might be something as simple as I just inherited some money. I sold a business. It might be something like, geez, we had our second child. We realized we didn't have life insurance. The desired future state, I've got a desired future state and I'm making a decision about Emlyn. And again, I'm not doing this consciously, but I'm making a decision. I'm going to take his value, what I perceive as his value, and I'm going to discount it by the uncertainty I feel of his ability to get me to the desired future state. The shorthand is desired future state discounted for uncertainty. 
Now, what Evelyn said earlier is like, if they're going to build a plan for you, it might be good to ask you a few questions. What's the discount going to be on your value if you haven't even taken the time to define, you haven't even taken the time to help me clarify my desired future state? Well, the discount's 100%, mm-hmm. which is why our industry has such a bad rap is because we're just chucking prescriptions at people. And the chance of that prescription being correct are almost zero because we've done no diagnosis. So I love that model of desired future state discounted for uncertainty. And I hope people who are clients of financial planners listening to this, like I hope that's helpful that you now know, like you walk in and say, well, wait, how does this joker know that you know a muni bond fund is a good idea? Like, like whatever. I don't even know if do those even exist anymore. It's been <laughs> 15 years since I was thinking about that stuff. Or an annuity or this financial plan because most people are unhappy with these. And when we ask them why they're unhappy with their financial plan, this is important. Okay, these are the good people in our industry, financial planners. Most people are unhappy with their financial plans. When they're asked why, they say, it didn't represent what I wanted. The only way we get there is because we never asked, right? Back to your first question, that's to me, the definition of real financial planning is asking. Yeah, absolutely. 1000% agree with that. I've been saying it for years, but we do a great job with the numbers and a horrible job with the people. And if we're going to not do a good job with the people, we probably shouldn't be in the profession. Just let's just say it what it is because the people are why we do it, right? The whole reason that we're in the people business because people are going to do work with people that they feel comfortable with, people that they like, people that understand them, people that Oh, crazy, crazy word here. People that actually care about them. If you're just caring about the next way you're going to get paid, the next piece of commission, the next dollar, if you're out there chasing dollars, it comes across. It's just hard to be genuine if you have a hidden agenda. Totally. A little while ago, when I would speak at conferences, I appointed myself the vice president of unspeakable things. (laughs) And one of the things I used to talk about was that love is the killer app for a financial planner. Where does that fit in your little calculator? It is like if we could just start treating people the way we want to be treated. Think of all the pain there is around mm-hmm. money. Like I've had five or six days in a row I'm going on. Unplanned, unscheduled conversations with different person each time around just deep pain of uncertainty and 45-year-olds, these have largely been men, 45-year-old men waking up and saying, is this all there is? What happened to all the people I love? Why do I feel so alone? Right? Well, largely that's been linked to, well, you've been at work the whole time, right? Well, why have you been at work the whole time? Because you thought your job, you were trained, your job was to provide and protect or some version of that, right? And then if you weren't doing that, you weren't doing your job. And again, I want to be clear. I said those were mostly men. That was just mostly the five conversations I've had this week have been with men. I'm not at all trying to say that that's a concern solely of men. It's just that those are the conversations I've had lately. So if we can get that in our bones, right? That that's what we're doing. Because all the other stuff, right? The other stuff's incredibly important. But you can build the best portfolio in the world ever created, ever, ever, ever. And you only get sort of one behavioral mistake a decade. And yeah, one behavioral mistake every five years. And you may as well have just had the money under the mattress, even in an inflationary period. So if we get all the tactics right, but it's leaning against the wrong wall, it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Exactly. And how do we know that it's leaning against the wrong wall? Yeah, I think that's a really good, really, really insightful question. Because again, like we talked about early, we don't know. And so 
that's the reason why real financial planning is a continual process. I like to think of it largely as like goal discovery over time. So the way you find out it's leaning against the wrong wall is you put the ladder up and you take a step or two and you go, ah, hmm, don't like this one. Yeah. Right. And then you go to a different wall. The thing we're trying to avoid is spending the whole life getting to the top of the ladder and then going, shoot, that was the wrong wall. So I think you just run little experiments and let's just talk practically. Like how does that show up in a client's life? Let's pretend, I mean, let's even just stick with the 45 year old theme. Like you're 45 years old and you're noticing like, shoot, I don't have the kind of relationships I thought I would have with my kids. Well, that is a sign. And most of us will avoid and do anything we can to drown out that signal. And we see that every day, like video games, TV, drugs, alcohol, you name the behavior. But if instead we can say, oh, that's just information that is trying to help me course correct a bit. And we can get to the hard work and say, okay, well, looks like I'm halfway up this ladder, but I still have time. What if I were to just start thinking through like, hey, Emlyn, I'd like to spend more time with my daughter. Can you help me make that happen? How could I do that financially? Like, I just need to get, I need to buy a little space. Oh, okay, cool, right? Or here's another example. First meeting, second, third meeting, early goal. We love going to the beach every year. We got to go to the beach. It's $10,000 to take our whole family to the beach for oh, eight days or whatever. We're going to fly. There's six of us, whatever. I don't know what the right number is. Let's just say it's $10,000. It's a lot of money. It's substantial. We have to be thinking about it. It's planning. It's not a rounding error for us. How do we do this? We go to the beach. We do it the next year. And let me give you a simpler example. My wife and I used to love to go. We thought the value was friendship. The wall we thought we were putting the ladder against was friendship. And the way we expressed that was by going to dinner and a movie with friends. And then we realized at the end of the night, we were like, <laughs> we were in a crowded, noisy restaurant. And then in a movie, there's no connection. So we were like, oh, that feels like that's a small little experiment. Oh, it turns out that's the wrong wall. You know what a good wall is? What if we invited them over to the house? We had all the ingredients there. We spent two or three hours preparing, cooking, you know, hanging out, cleaning up, having chats. We did that instead. Well, the nice side benefit is that was a little cheaper, but that wasn't the point. The point was, let's get it leaning against the right wall. So that's to me how you do that. It's a never ending process of discovery. So it's not a place you can arrive. And I think that's frustrating for most of us humans. You know, just give me the checklist, damn it. You know, yeah. like, no, that turns out we've got to explore this together. And that really points to the value, like the deep value. I mean, I could have picked a hundred retirement. Please mm -hmm. don't get me started on <laughs> figuring out which wall that is and whether that's even a good idea. And, but all of these are so personal that that's where a really good guide is helpful. Absolutely. I think as the clients, I always, one of the things I always try to make sure that I tell them, I said, I'm not your hero. I'm not here to save you. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, you're going to save yourself. I said, I'm just your guide. All I'm here is just a guide, just so you can check in, make sure that we're on schedule to go where we want to go. But you are the hero in this story. It's not me. The client looks at me like when I say that, but it kind of resonates with them. Like, you know what? You're right. Yeah, I'm going to have to do. That means you're going to have to do something, too. It's not just me. I'm not going to come in. You're going to give me all, you know, everything that you have. And then I'm going to make magic happen. Right. Magic happens when the client understands the assignment. And when For the assignment sure. is understood, then you can carry out the assignment after we do the deep work. One of the things that you talk about a lot, anytime I just think about it, because I still think this still pops up, I guess it never goes away. And that's imposter syndrome. 
I think I'm over it sometimes. And then, nope, it comes back. It's always there. But definitely want to hear you talk about that. That's a thought of yours that I love. Yeah. So this conversation requires a, a disclaimer or two, which is, <laughs> I know there are people in the world that imposter syndrome, like that real like technical term is paralyzing and different than what I'm talking about. I also know that there are situations and there are people and situations where what I'm about to talk about is actually not safe. And there are good reasons. And I'm thinking sometimes of the planners of color and women that I've had this conversation with that have said, hey, if I were to have done that, I would have been fired. There are good reasons to keep your head down sometimes, right? And I can't pretend to know where the boundary conditions are. And so with that disclaimer, which I think is really important, I just had this conversation with somebody who was telling me that, yeah, he was dealing with imposter syndrome. If I remember right, he was Vietnamese. And like for his parents were the first generation to come to the States. And he was dealing with imposter syndrome. And he would tell me these stories about, dude, my dad only survived. He only survived because he kept his head down right? He only survived because he didn't stand out, right? Mm-hmm. So talk about that's a different type of imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, so with all of that out of the way, to me, imposter syndrome, so it hasn't gone away for me. Again, this New York Times column every week, it was almost every week that I was like, oh my gosh, somebody's going to come in any minute now and find out. In fact, I used to have this dream it actually wasn't even, it was like a daydream. I would go to, I'd write the column and then I'd draw a sketch. And I used to do it literally with Sharpie and cardstock. And Emily and I had a Fujitsu snap scanner. I was literally sitting in an office in Park City, Utah, as a kid from the hills in Utah that had never written anything for anybody. And I was in my hand was a Sharpie and cardstock I bought from Staples. And when I was done, I would put it in a Fujitsu snap scanner <laughs> and I would send it to the editor at the New York Times, right? And every time I'd go to do that, I'd go to hit the send button and I would feel, literally it was over my left shoulder where my door was. I had one of those frosted glass doors. So you could see a shadow, but you had no idea. You couldn't even tell if it was a man or a woman or who it was. And I would feel like I'd look over there and feel like there was a person there. And they would open the door and they would look in and go, what is going on in here? Like, who gave you permission? Is that a Fujitsu snap scan? Yeah. Like, is that a Sharpie? Mm-hmm. Wait till they find out. That's the feeling I would get each week. And I actually ended up personifying that person. For me, that person is Mr. Burns. In fact, our good friend, Justin Costelli, sent me a bobblehead of Mr. Burns. It's right inside the box that the computer's on. Yeah, let's see. Here he is right here. So Justin sent me Mr. Burns. Nice. And so Mr. Burns now, I was like, it's Mr. Burns who's coming in. And for a while, I was like, oh, no, this is bad. There was some interesting things happened. Like I noticed I was on, I did my first big international speaking event and it was in South Africa. And I remember being in South Africa and just being like, oh no, mm-hmm. you know, like same feeling. I walked out, it was gonna be 3,500 people. I walked out for rehearsal stage, the stadium seating, you know, that whole feeling just being like, oh. and I turned around, I went back. I was like, I can't. And then I was like, oh, whoa, is Mr. Burns here? You know, like I kind of feel that way. And then I noticed it, the change for me happened when I noticed it at a mountain bike race at the start line. And I was like, oh, that's that same tightening in the chest. It's Mr. Byrne. And then I was like, wait, he's always here when something cool is about to go down, right? I started thinking back. I was like, 
he was at my wedding. Mr. Burns was at the birth of each one of my children, but especially the birth of my first one. You know, like he's at all the cool parties. So then I was like, well, wait a second. And again, we had the disclaimers about different types of imposter syndrome. This is just a strain of fear to me. I was like, well, wait, if Mr. Burns is at all the cool parties, why am I trying to get rid of it? I want to build, and I've largely, since that day, I've largely structured my life around the idea of exposing myself often to Mr. Burns. Like I want him around. So what I say now is to me, the way I deal with it is it was really important to physically notice it, like physically notice the feeling. Because I think what most of us do is we think that's a stop sign because it's just living underneath. And it's literally, you know, it's coming from the same place that my Vietnamese friend was coming from. Mm-hmm. Like it, we're wired to say, dude, if you step out of the herd, you are going to get eaten mm-hmm. historically. Yep. And I'm hyper alert and hyper aware. So I think there's an actual lion behind every bush. So I've had to literally say to Mr. Burns, Hey man, I'm just typing an email here. Mm-hmm. I'm just recording a podcast with Emily. Like there's no lion here. It may not work, but I promise you, even if it doesn't work, I'm not going to die. And within a day or two, I'll look back and go, wow, even though that didn't work, that was a really valuable lesson. So I now think of it as Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this too. I now like to think of imposter syndrome as a crazy uncle. It's always allowed to come on the trip, but never allowed to drive. So that's how I think about it. So I notice it. And then I say, sometimes I even say it out loud. Hey, I'm glad you're back. Let's get to work. And that's been the difference for me. It has not gone away. And one thing to know that, I think the more your career, the more success you have in your career, I think the harder it gets because one of the versions of this this is a hallmark of imposter syndrome in the research is that it doesn't go away. And the further you get along in your career, it can get even more difficult. And that's largely because you're like looking down, you know, like, whoa, that's a long ways to fall. If this goes wrong now, you know, so that's how I've dealt with it. Absolutely. And I just wanted you to articulate that because I know how important it is for people to hear, especially coming from you. It's something that we all deal with, but hearing you talk about it always helps me get through what I'm doing. I'm like, well, if Carl goes through this too, then I know, I mean, I'm okay. I'm in good company. It's a bear that we all have to defeat or Mr. Burns that we all have to overcome. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Cause I think the same about you. Like if Emlyn's worried about this, man, that doesn't feel so lonely anymore. And I did a research project once where I interviewed crazy people that your readers would all know the names of. And they all like Obama talked about this in the episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee when Jerry went to the White House. He talked about it. Now, I think we may have had one president who didn't feel this way. We won't mention any names. But most presidents, I've been told, the first time in the Oval Office alone, are like, oh, crap, I hope nobody finds out I'm here. Yeah. You know? So yeah, we're all doing it together. This has been incredible. And always enjoy having you come on. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast, where we're changing the complexion of wealth. And I always like to ask you this question for sure, because you've given so much information, but I got to say, if you had a piece like parting gifts or advice for the community, we talked a little bit about who it is, but what would those words be? What advice did you give to them? Yeah. So I don't know so much about advice, but just Mm -hmm. like almost kind of begging slash encouraging, particularly your audience. Because look, I am not a minority in this industry for sure, right? (laughs) Or maybe even in any way, other than the fact that I'm bald, right? Like I am smack dab in the middle of the demographic of this financial planning industry. And the reason I care 
aside from the fact that it's just the right thing to do, set that aside for a minute, which that's good enough reason alone. But let's set it aside for a minute. The reason I care about hearing from voices like yours is because the only way, right? Like the same voices are going to get us the same result. And there is a richness. Like I am not interested in asking questions that I know the answer to. (laughs) I am not interested in having conversations that I've had 15,000 times before. I'm interested in hearing my friend Anna tell me about money from her background. I'm interested in having Brian talk to me about what it was like to be a black financial planner who is also gay. Like, what's that like? And what does that set of lenses, because Brian has a different set of lenses on than I have had my whole life. So he's seen things differently than I've seen them. And how much better is my life? And I get emotional about this because it's so important to me. Like, how much better is my life because I've heard that story? And I can tell you exactly the story I'm talking about with Brian. And it changed me. Well, I'm not going to hear that from somebody like me. It's the reason I love to travel. It's the reason I love to have conversations with random people on the street. It's the richness of life. Now, the thing I'm begging, and I don't even, it's hard for me to even ask because I realize there are some real challenges. And hopefully we're making headway. Feels like we are. But I just am begging you to keep sharing your stories. Keep talking about, keep making a difference. Don't give in to the system. Don't feel like you have to have a website with a stupid lighthouse and a compass and a couple holding hands and the sailboat. And I know, I do know the fear and the pain of doing something new and novel. I do know the fear and the pain of sticking out. And I also know that I have privilege in the sense of I'm not going to die because of it. I don't mean to be overdramatic there. I just mean, please keep sharing the stories. Please keep sharing the perspectives. Because if we're going to solve this problem for all of us, we're not going to be able to solve the problem doing the same thing and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. And so my life is far richer. And I feel like I'm much closer to being helpful to a much broader range of people because people have had the guts and the courage to say it anyway in face of a system that was largely not built to allow them to say it. So that's what I would say. Hopefully that comes across as intended. Absolutely. What I always say is I'm picking up what you're putting down, Carl. I'm picking up what you're putting down. (laughs) This is always incredible. I love having conversations with you. It's always fun, very informative. And also, I think iron sharpens iron. So when we can get in here and talk and share ideas, and then fortunate enough, everybody gets to listen. I told you when we got out, I said, I just want to talk to my friend and just just chat. And so I, I think that we were able to do that today. And once again, I want to thank you for stopping by for the work that you're doing and for the inspiration that you provide, not only to me, but to other financial advisors, to other real financial advisors. I can't thank you enough. So yeah, Carl, thank you. Emlyn, amen, my friend. That was so fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely. As you all know, this is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you.
While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here, and until next time.